Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha, and welcome again to a new episode of Rice for Breakfast, a podcast about Asian Americans and pop culture. First of all, uh, I've received a ton of comments about the theme music of the show, and it's actually from a song from my old band down in San Francisco named Rio Rio, and the song is called Gorilla Gorilla. Uh, I'm not sure why both names are doubled. You're going to have to ask Josh, uh, the old guitarist and founder of the band, that. Uh, we are no longer a band, but you can find our EP on Spotify, so if you're interested, it's called Rio Rio, and the record is called The Light Parade EP. Uh, I played synths on that, so if you like a little synth line on this, um, that's me playing it. Uh, in pop culture news, I know I sound like a broken record, but if Crazy Rich Asians continues to stay number one on the box office, I'm going to have to keep talking about it. Uh, last weekend, Crazy Rich Asians topped the box office again for a third week in a row, now with a domestic gross of up to $119 million. Equally as impressive, the film brought in the biggest Labor Day weekend numbers since 2007's remake of Halloween. So congrats again to the uh, amazing cast and crew of Crazy Rich Asians. The film features an amazing cover of Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love With You by Kina Granis. Uh, her version of the song was also featured in this week's episode of So You Think You Can Dance. So uh, if you don't know the song or you want to listen to it again or watch um, some folks dance to it, go and check her out on Twitter. That's at Kina Granis, K-I-N-A-G-R-A-N-N-I-S. Uh, we got two new written iTunes reviews this week. The first is from my buddy Yusagi Yoslimbo. He says, love learning and hearing about different perspectives from my own. Makes my head explode. Uh, my buddy Slim, he also has a sweet podcast called Link in Bio. Um, it's a really interesting podcast where he interviews different people about things they love and things they're passionate about every week. Uh, it's a nice little deep dive into single subject topics like that. You can find him on Twitter at linkspod. Um, go listen to it. We have a second review from Mayor Pauline. I love that this podcast shines a light on the lesser known Asian American pictures in pop culture. There's so many talented people outside of the few names the entertainment industry recycles, parentheses, though also fabulous. And it's great to hear their stories. So thank you, Mayor Pauline, as well. Um, this week's guest is Augie Max Vargas, an award-winning producer who currently has 126 producer and crew credits on IMDb ranging from Super Bowl halftime shows, the Teen Choice Awards, and A Christmas Story Live. Augie is also a Filipino-American, so he and I bond over the absurdity of Filipino movies, uh, what it means to be o'e, or overacting, as my family loves to say, and uh, never admitting you might not remember a person you see uh, or greet again at a family event. We also talk about his brief attempt to become a professional wrestler, what it was like to win his first Emmy and his upcoming documentary, The School of Hard Knocks. After re-listening to our conversation, it's pretty clear that a theme in Augie's life has always been making sure you continue to go after and do things uh, you love. There are several times Augie could have just settled for a career job, but he knew he wanted more, so he made sure uh, his life took him the way he felt he was supposed to go. It's a really interesting conversation. Again, another one of these full circle conversations about how things that happened to him when he was really little ended up having a big effect on who he is today. Really fun episode, and I think everyone will enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget, eat your rice for breakfast. Augie, how's it going? Hey, what's going on, Ian? How you doing, brother? Good, good, good. Uh, how was your weekend? Slash uh, week. 
you know what? It's uh, it was I did a garage sale for uh, one of my friends. I was helping him out do a garage sale, and it's super hot in California right now. So yeah. that was uh, that was fun. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm back at work. I'm doing the Teen Choice Awards nice. uh, as a production supervisor and um, gearing up for that. That's coming up in about two and a half weeks. Yeah, you're pr- you're a pretty busy guy. I mean, we've been trying to get this conversation on the books for a while now and you have event after event uh is summer season your busy season or you kind of are just always you know um, that yeah it's, it's always um it, it's very interesting sometimes I'm, I'm total freelance so i don't work for a specific company i am hired on a show-by-show basis so after i finish teen choice awards i have a little vacation and then i start up stand up to cancer for a completely different production company we're at a completely different office so it just depends on on what's going on sometimes there's an award show season uh, which is usually january to march ish and that's usually always busy but sometimes like in the middle of summer there's like a little dry spell it, it, it depends. It's just kind of like the life of a freelancer. Um, but I, I enjoy it. I, I, I don't. I don't know anything else. I've been doing this since I started. Why don't we go from the very beginning? Uh, where did you grow up? Where are your parents from? Grandparents from? That sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, I am. I was born in the United States in Dallas, Texas. My parents are both Filipino immigrants. My mother uh, is actually what's known as a mestiza, and that's. Because you may know, it's it's half white, half Filipina. Her father was a GI in World, I believe, World War II, and my father was born in the Philippines as well. So they came over, I believe, in the '60s, and I was born in '78. So and they went right to Texas. They went to, I think that's where they started off at. Yeah, it's actually yeah. they've been they've been around. They've been to Chicago. They've been. They moved around a lot, uh, but uh, it came via my mom. Uh, my mom was a registered nurse. She, she okay. went to school like a lot of Filipinas, mm-hmm. and uh, she went to school for nursing and came over and became a nurse. And my father came along with, and they uh, they traveled the, 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 the states for a little bit. They went to Chicago. They were in L.A. They went back to Dallas, I believe, at some point. And then they we kind of settled in L.A. Um, I... I was born in Dallas, but I actually lived in the Philippines for the first oh, okay. three years of my life. So I was from like about eight months or so, somewhere in that range, till about four years old. I was living in the Philippines. Where in the my, Philippines? Manila, but we have family in various areas. Uh, Bicol is where my father is from. Mm-hmm. And my mother is from the Pangasinan area. That's where like 100 Islands is. Right. And so, yeah, they're kind of spread out there and uh, and... But uh, yeah, then we ended up, I came back when I was around four years old and lived in Burbank, California for till about junior high. Then I lived in Pomona, which is just about an hour outside of LA for my high school, college life. And then I came back and now I live, I've lived in Hollywood since probably about 2000, Hollywood proper, a bunch of different areas in Hollywood, but. Right, so you've just been in SoCal basically for the remainder of that. Uh, who did you live with in the Philippines? It sounded like you were about to say something, and then I yeah. So uh, my I was sent out there. My mom had gotten in a car accident, and they just needed some some help with the the kids. My I have an older brother, and then myself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I stayed out there with a, a huge family. My father is one of ten kids, and or was one of ten kids. My father passed away, but he was part of this huge family and then my mother also was was part of a huge family so we would stay primarily with my dad's family where i basically had 
nonstop supervision from <laughs> various family members. So right. uh, that's that's looked after me while I was over there. Did that ever come up when you were growing up? And did you have to explain that ever? Yeah, you know, it's funny. My girlfriend is is white. She came from Oklahoma City, and she. It, it's a very foreign idea of of sending your kids overseas while you make kind of you know make your make your money and and mm-hmm. start your career because it's 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 hard. I mean, I've talked to my mom about it. I've talked to some aunts who did the same thing, and right. you know, you never want to be separated from your child. Of course, so I, I do have to explain it a little bit, but it's it's just something that uh, I'm fine with. I understand what it was about, and and uh, it, it just takes a little explaining for for some people who don't get that sort of thing. So growing up in LA or in, in where you say Pomona first? I, well, Burbank, California first, which is, you know, where all it's the media capital of the world. If you will, Burbank is where Warner brothers is. It's where, um, you know, it's just down the street from universal studios. Yeah. It's where Johnny, it's where Johnny Carson and Jay Leno had their studios. The NBC studios are in Burbank and, um, Warner Brothers Studios is in Burbank. Did that fast? Did that stuff kind of interest you when you were a kid? I mean, obviously now you've been working in TV. Was that did that influence yeah, you? One hundred percent. We had um, there were times when the Wonder Years was shooting at our school, and there were times when the A Team was shooting down at the strip mall or wherever in our area, and we went to go see it. And it was re- like to be able to see Mr. T in his director's chair, and to to know that certain areas in our town were used in films. Like there's a scene from the little rascals reboot that came out, you know, over probably now over a decade or so, um, or probably two decades. Two decades, yeah, probably 20. Yeah. So it, it was, it, there was, there was a scene that was shot near my neighborhood at my favorite corner store. And, and so just having those sort of things around always kind of reminded us that we were in the movies. We were in the business. Do you know your favorite, remember your favorite movie growing up or your favorite um, TV show? Um, well, you know, when it came to cartoons, we had, my brother and I had a ritual. And this is something I, I very much remember. They don't have Saturday morning cartoons now. Um, but, but back in the day, we used to wake up about 5 a.m. We would start watching uh, Turner's or TBS which had uh, Turner's wrestling promotion, which was the NWA at the time. So we would watch Ric Flair beat up on some jobbers, and we would watch the Road Warriors, and we'd watch all that for the first hour or so of the day, so from five to six. And then we would start watching the Saturday morning cartoons that would start showing from that time till about 11 or 12. And then at 11 or 12 was when... WWF show would come on on, <laughs> on Fox local out here. And so I, we, we, we basically sandwiched a bunch of cartoons between two wrestling shows. And uh, that, that I vividly remember that being our, our morning routine. And I loved Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And I loved, um, gosh, there were so many different ones, obviously, you know, GI Joe transformers. Those were big ones. He-Man, all, all those were my favorite ones as a kid, but, but it was, it was always with wrestling. Right, so, so those are the add-on, right? It's funny. I mean, we'll get to it later. You're you're working and directing a movie right now about uh, amateur pro wrestlers trying to make it big. So clearly, your childhood influences uh, really guided <laughs> your future there. Growing up with your brother, um, how much older is he? He's a year and eight months. Right. Yeah. It's almost two years. Did you guys have a were you close growing up, or were you kind of typical brothers? Yeah. Oh, totally close. We we and I would 
try to do anything he did and followed him around and just try to be around him. And uh, I would copy how he drew pictures. I would do all that stuff. So we were we're practically twins, you know. Uh, was that a part, was that natural or did your parents kind of hone in like you two really have to stick together uh, oh, as yeah. growing up? Yeah, it's funny you say that because our, we, my brother and I often joke about my mom um, who would always stop us mid fight and say stop stop fighting it's just the two of you in yeah. her Filipino <laughs> accent and and you know it, it, of course when you hear that it does you're just like whatever mom and you don't really care but later on down the road we went through some stuff we we had a falling out we didn't talk to each other for a year or so and we just came to the realization it's just you know we it is just the two of us and there we we have to stick together and that's something that that stuck with us and that's from our mom and, and the Filipino ways. Right. Were there other things uh, when you're growing up that your mom or dad or both uh, kind of old like Filipino ways that have stuck with you? Maybe not so much when you were younger, but as you grew up, you're like, you know what? They're right about, you know, a thing or two there. <laughs> um, you know, it's always interesting because there, there is that it's such a different culture where you have to do the, um, the bless, you know, like I'm, <laughs> you, you, for those who don't know, you, you got to, take your elder's hand and, and, and put your forehead against their, their hand. And it's like a very Godfather-esque sort of uh, thing to do, but it, it's, a, it's a way of showing your respect for them. I, I, like, I don't really like doing that personally. I, I love giving hugs. Like if I see a grandparent or an uncle, I'll just I'll give them a big hug. And that's my way of showing them, you know, love and respect. Being in a Filipino family, is a very loving thing. There's a lot of hugging and kissing and smiling <laughs> and singing and, and a- acting like you know this uh aunt or uncle from however yeah, many se- separations exactly. <laughs> yeah you just have to pretend if they yeah. ask you oh i used to take care of, oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> because otherwise you're gonna hurt the feelings right yeah uh, did you grow up eating um traditional filipino food much um you know what not really um my mom was was the master of just making a mashup of whatever was available in the fridge. So we would have uh, spam, we would have uh, corned beef, we would have rice for sure, uh, we would have omelets mixed in with that. It was always a variety, but we never had, it wasn't like there was dinoguan here and there was, my parents kind of knew we weren't super into that. And um, we like, there's still like, I every now and then I, I love to go to a Filipino restaurant or, or or if we're at a party, I'll, I'll have some adobo and some of the classic stuff. Yeah. But there's a lot of good Filipino food in LA too. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Filipino food is slowly becoming very, very trendy. Um, and LA, obviously there's a huge Filipino community down there is kind of one of the hotbeds for them too. Oh yeah. I mean, we're everywhere really, you know, yeah. but, but for sure LA is, is super strong hotbed. Yeah. For I mean, Filipino. even on that spam is becoming, I remember a couple, this is maybe four Four years ago, five years ago, I saw a BuzzFeed post that said, um, you know, uh, the best things we learned in 2000, what, 2013. And it said, you know, you can have spam with sushi, spam with sushi. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the world is catching on to the, to the great secret of how good spam actually is. <laughs> yeah. You know, over in, um, in Hawaii, if it's you go to huge, a 7-Eleven, yeah. yeah, you can buy it in a 7-Eleven. That's like part of their 
their deal over there, which is also funny about the Philippines, because if you go to the Philippines and you go to a McDonald's over there, you can get chicken there. You can get things spaghetti. that are off the, yeah, muck spaghetti, uh, things that are not on the American menu, are they are available in the Filipino menu. Back to stuff you watched growing up. Did you ever watch like Filipino uh, films or anything like that? Because, the, you know, yeah, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say just the, the film culture in the Philippines is also huge. I mean, especially for action stars uh, and, and comedians. It's a big yeah, deal over there. Absolutely. It's funny you say that because I have one great, uh, great aunt, I believe she is. Um, she's a she's the cousin of my grandfather on my dad's side. And she was a popular comedian in the Philippines. And I was always aware of her. Her name was Evelyn Vargas. And she, we always knew of her. It was like, Oh, uh, Lola Evelyn or Tita Evelyn. And, I'd never met her and I still haven't met her to this day, but we are Facebook friends. She recently <laughs> she recently saw she had seen somehow the uh, what last year when I won the Emmy, they my family, especially in the Philippines, just were plastering it all, all over the wall. So my Tita Evelyn somehow reached out to me and uh, it was really kind of cool because I, she was this mythical person to me for the longest time. And now we're Facebook buddies and we're trying to collaborate on something. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah, it's pretty. I, I, I really hope to be able to do that, do something with her because it would be my father would 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 be just like he would love it because he was always about trying to get me involved in, in that sort of thing. Um, I do have another uncle as well who is a contravida. He's always the bad guy in the film. So he's like, he's a muscle guy. He's basically kind of like a Danny Trejo-esque sort of person where if you see a Filipino movie, action movie with Ronnie Ricketts or any of those popular Filipino stars, you'll see him as the, the muscle and he'll, he'll get beat up and, and whatever. But so yeah, I have, I have family who were involved in it. Um, I never got into it. I, I There's something about it that I, I can't really pinpoint it. I guess, you know, some people would say it's corny. Right. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's, it's not, it, but that's just the culture. You, yeah. if, you go, if you go there, you'll realize that that's just kind of the humor. You'll, it's like your, your corny uncle, right? Yeah, I mean, everything, all Filipino humor is so, so obvious, right? Even just like when people are casually making jokes, right? Yeah. And, uh, even, it's not even just an older thing, even my cousins who are, you know, around my age in the Philippines, all their humor is very, uh, what's in front of you, which I think is funny. And it, it does translate to the, to the films. Yeah. It, it's, it's a cultural thing. And it's just, I don't, uh, I, I don't get it. Um, I, I, I see my mom, I'll come home. And of course, if you, uh, are, have family who are, from the Philippines that live out here, usually they have the uh, the cable package with right. the TFC. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and so I I don't have it. I don't watch that stuff. But I'll go visit my mom who lives about an hour out of, outside of LA, and she's watching it. And I'm like, what are you watching? And it's like these shows where they it's like these variety shows, and there's a lot of like sound effects, like like <laughs> uh, boing and yeah. like just weird stuff. And I'm like. But they love it. It's yeah. just part of their culture. And uh, but I never got into it. I remember I do remember a cartoon called Captain Barbell, which was like about a Filipino like Superman type character where he would transform into he was like a weakling, but then he would transform into Captain Barbell. Uh, but yeah, I never got too into the the film scene there. Um, I couldn't I couldn't name a film to you and I, I just it's never been my thing. No, yeah, I mean even me so my grandparents when they moved to Daly City um right outside the Bay Area a lot of Filipinos there. They eventually opened up a Filipino video rental store and I, I never got into them. I know they tried getting me to watch them all the time so I could learn hmm. uh Tagalog. Um 
but I mean, I, I remember I like this comedian named Dolphy. I thought was really funny. He yeah. Would, and like speaking of obvious humor, I mean, I have like vivid memories of like dying laughing. He would uh, peel a banana and then instead of eating the banana, you know, he would eat the peel and things like that. Yeah. And things like that. I remember just like loving, loving as a kid, but um, I, I never got into any of like the serious more, you know, action films and action movies are really big. Yeah. Movie. And then even when the, the, even when the, the drama stuff, like, you know, we talk about cornies, like the comedy's corny, but then the drama is like, yeah. overacting. it's OA as they call it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's too much. You're just like, what, you know? And <laughs> yeah. so that sort of thing just always kind of turned me off. Cause it was just, and then, you know, it's, of course it's the language too. And it's sure. not, do you speak Tagalog? I, I speak enough to have like a, passable conversation right, i think right uh whenever i speak in front of a filipino in the philippines they're always impressed because they're right. like oh because for the most part american you know philams they do not learn the language and yeah. and maybe it's because i know my parents didn't want us they didn't want to they did they actively did not speak to us in tagalog because they didn't want it to affect our, our grade oh great yeah okay. well that yeah it was more about getting held back they didn't want us to get you know, mm. held back with school because we didn't speak the language correctly. So we, we spoke English. My brother and I, that was our primary language. I, I kind of picked it up from listening to my mom on the phone and my dad yeah. on the phone and, and just being around our uncles and aunts whenever there was like a family soiree or something. And right. I would just listen and I would pick things up. And I remember kind of, I think it was after high school when I came back to the Philippines for the first time as kind of like a grown kid. And I remember just trying to talk and, and just mimic. And, and I, I started picking it up and I was like, oh, I guess I started, I guess I learned some stuff from listening to my mom talk to her friends on the phone, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I have a similar um, experience with that. So I was never taught Tagalog. Uh, my grandparents, I lived, my grandparents lived in my house growing up as well. Uh, and so my grandparents would always speak Tagalog with each other and they would speak to my mom and my dad um, and then they would speak English to us. But I guess living with them for, you know, 18 years, uh, I had picked it up because when I similar when I went to the Philippines, when I, you know, three years ago or so, um, when I was in the Philippines, I actually was able to understand, I mean, loosely mm -hmm. what the people were saying. And I was surprised myself because I was able to actually translate some things that, you know, whether my relatives were saying something and I could, you know, tell uh, I was able to know what they were doing, which I thought was kind of interesting because I guess it was just subconsciously uh, <laughs> buried yeah. deep down there. Uh, so you just mentioned you went to the Philippines when you were in high school. So that was your first time kind of as like a older person. Uh, what was that experience like? Did you have uh, culture shock? Were you excited? How, how was that? Well, you know, I, like you, I went a lot when I was younger. So after I came back here to the States, say five years old. I think we went like every other year at that point. So it was already embedded. I, there wasn't, there was no culture shock by that point because I knew what my culture was. And I, I always knew that my family, I had this like huge family of the, of people who lived across the ocean. And even though I was living this American life, I knew that was part of who I was. So, so yeah, like, it, there was no culture shock. Um, I, I think when I went back when I was like teenager or whatever it was, I got to go to a couple bars because I was right. tall. I was so tall for uh, for uh, a Filipino. Filipino. <laughs> yeah, that I was able to get into bars without people questioning it or or whatnot. So that was kind of cool. I was hanging with some of my cousins who were always like my older cousins, and so that that was fun. But it wasn't a culture shock by any means because I, I just I already knew what it was from. from 
from the earlier years. So after high school, where did you go to where did you go to college? Yeah, so after high school, I went to my local community college, which is Mount San Antonio College in Walnut, California, which is again a very strong Filipino contingent over there as well. And um, the school is it was where a lot of people from my high school ended up kind of going into because my high school in Pomona was it was not a public or a private school. It was it was a public school, and it was not the best place to go to school. Out of out of some of the schools there, probably was, but compared to where I was at in Burbank, it was it was a completely different level, and, and nobody was trying, and it just wasn't. Um, the best place to be. So a lot of our graduates were not going to Harvard or, or Yale or anything like that. There were a few that, that did get to make it out, but um, we went to this community college and I, I started out, I took general education and I just, I wasn't into it, man. I was like so burnt on uh, the last four years having done school. I really wanted to make money. I wanted to have a career and start that. So after about a semester of, of general education stuff, I, I just bailed. I started doing networking. I was uh, an apprentice for this guy who did cable networking for office buildings. So we would go to an office building and crawl in an attic with asbestos and all this nasty <laughs> stuff. And we would run cable. And, and, you know, this is back before wireless routers and all that sort of stuff. You needed to run a cable across an office, down, drop it down a hole and so I learned how to do that, but I was like, this isn't what I want to do either. Um, Did your parents say anything when you said you weren't going to go to, you were just going to join the workforce? Um, they didn't, they weren't pushing on it. They, my, my parents, um, I think by that point, my parents were already divorced. And um, of course, my, my dad was always you know, like all about me graduating and all that. And my mom was just, I guess, you know, the mom's always like, gonna be baby you or let you do what you want to speak <laughs> right. and so she never really pushed me to go back because she i think she was just happy that i was trying to make some money yeah, making money sure yeah. yeah she although although my my mom my parents were great they never um that was never something like they pushed for they weren't like they wanted me to go to school and all that but um i just i had to get out and, and so i did that networking stuff and then i realized that wasn't for me either because i just it wasn't creative and it wasn't my thing did you want to be because you said it wasn't creative did you know you wanted to do something um within the film and television world or you just kind of wanted to Not, do something where you could do more uh, yeah, not yet. Um, I still wasn't quite sure. What was funny was to, to rewind um, when my, my dad, my parents had bought a movie camera, one of those VHS movie oh, yeah. cameras, and I was the one who was deputized as the you know honorary photographer for whenever we had events, whether it was my mom's class reunion or my dad's class reunion or a family event. They're like, oh, okay. Get the camera and shoot the right. video. <laughs> and so I would I would be tasked with doing it. So I started becoming this, you know, director of, of these home videos and and um my brother and I because we're like, hey, we got the camera, we would start making these home videos and we did like a Punisher home video. We did a Batman, we did a Daredevil. And and it, what was funny was in every film it was the same plot. It was because there was only three of us. It was like my brother, myself, and a friend of his. And so my brother would be the hero, and his friend would be the villain, and I would be the victim who gets killed at the beginning right, of, of course. the course, you're, you're the little brother, that's, that's yeah, obvious, yeah. <laughs> exactly, so so by by default, I ended up becoming also the director of the film. So 
um, with my brother because he was guiding me, of course, as the eldest. And I remember us making these films and, and I would die at the beginning and then I'd take the camera and I'd shoot the rest of them. And uh, it wasn't until later, it wasn't until after the, the PC store where, where I realized, yeah, this isn't going anywhere. And I just, I was thinking about my, my life and the things I'd done. And I kept looking back and I was like, yeah, I remember that moment. And then I also remembered we had a talent show at my elementary school and I, I wanted to be in it, but I didn't know what my talent was. I didn't know what talents I had. And so I ended up defaulting to the stage manager position. Oh my God. <laughs> I, 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 I was the stage manager and I ran the floor and worked with directly with the, the, the teacher that was in charge of the talent show. And, um, I, I did. I did a good job. I remember having a, a good time doing it. And um, uh, so when I had this kind of epiphany, where I was like, you know what, I think I need to get into the entertainment industry again. Looking back at where we came from in Burbank, and it was always around. It was always part of my life. So I just decided, all right, I'm going to go back to school. And so I, I went back to my community college, Mount San Antonio College, and I got. I took all production classes. I didn't take anything that was general education. I didn't take anything that was an elective not relating to production. So no Spanish, no French. I was just like, no, I'm doing all TV production. So I took voiceover classes. I took um, class, uh, editing classes. I took cl classes where you were just hands-on. We did like, we had a, a class where we did live news with the local uh, city news. Yeah. And so we got to do like every position involved, whether it was the pedestal camera or whether it was running audio cable or whether it was mixing the audio or whether it was uh, being an AD, like we had to do it all, graphics, all that stuff. So I, I, I really just dived into it because I dove into it rather. I was really into it. And um, for the next two and a half, it was almost about three years from 97 till 2000, uh, I just went just all the way, all, all in. Um, and I, I had a great time. I learned a lot of things, and that's actually kind of where the, it, it's a full circle thing with the wrestling film I'm working on because when I was in college, I was going to independent wrestling shows. I discovered that there was wrestling outside of WWF and WCW, and um, I, I discovered ECW via uh, Prime Ticket, which was the old Fox channel, and um, I started finding out there was a places nearby. And so I went to these, the show out in San Bernardino, which is about two hours outside of LA. And I started watching these indie shows. And because I was going to production classes, I knew I had access to gear. So I approached the owners and I said, Hey, can I shoot your shows? I, I, I realized, I just noticed you guys don't have any production and I'd love to do this as my class project. So I, so during that, this time when I'm kind of, immersing myself into television production i'm also saying i'm going to produce my own show and i uh, i went i shot their shows and i produced uh, a public access show for them uh, we did like about four episodes and uh public access for those who don't know now is, is essentially what youtube is but it was for just a smaller <laughs> right. it's a smaller market you would go and you would go to your local Comcast or whatever the the cable station was near you, and you would say, "Hey, I live in the area. I'd like to produce a show to air on the public access." Like and Wayne and Garth, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. Wayne's World and and that sort of thing. And it's it's akin to what kids are doing now with YouTube because you you just shot your own stuff and 
but the only thing the only thing was it was only people in your area that would see it so within a proximity of wherever your cable company provided those are the only people that could see it it's like uh direct tv's channel right it's a, a dedicated channel if you are a direct tv subscriber so um, I made those shows and they aired on local public access and like Claremont, San Bernardino and uh, just that sort of area. And um, it was great. It was it was a huge stepping stone for me to realize I can actually produce something, even if it was like kind of Bush League. Um, just yeah, because you're doing it right. I mean, that's that's pretty, yeah. pretty amazing. A lot of people wouldn't have, um, you know, they, they wouldn't have it in them to at least try it for whether it's fear of failing or, uh, you know, they think it won't be a success just people won't watch it or they can't do it themselves. I, I mean, I think it's uh, pretty awesome that you're able just to do that, especially since, again, like you said, it kind of went full circle from even when you were a kid, right? To influence you to create something that you knew you wanted to do. Okay. Yeah, for sure, man. It was, it, it really kind of gave me uh, the confidence that I could be a producer. And cause what produ a lot of people are like, well, what's a producer? And really what a producer is, is just getting stuff done. Like, and, and whether that's me connecting the dots between, oh, here's a place that doesn't have video production for their entertainment, um, but I have a friend who works at this public access station that has equipment and he wants to shoot stuff. So it's like putting those pieces together. That's, that's really kind of, in my mind, what, what producing is. You have to know who does what and how to connect them so that you accomplish that goal. So that was that was like my first foray into it and it gave me confidence. It really did. And um, that's one of the reasons I'm making my movie because I want to pay homage to that time of my life. And, and um, it's interesting because I was one of the people who was part of that early group. And a lot of people who are also part of that group have now moved on and become successes in, in professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. One of them wrestles for new Japan pro wrestling, which is a big company uh, out in Japan, but also making their way into LA or uh, the, the United States market. And then some of them wrestle for Lucha Underground, which is a promotion with on uh, El Rey and also on Netflix. So it's cool because it, it is full circle for a lot of people. Yeah. Right? So, um, so when, since we're on it, why don't we talk a little bit uh, about your movie right now? So you're directing and I'm assuming producing uh, a film called The School of Hard Knocks. It's a documentary. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that then? Yeah, it is. It is a documentary about the school of hard knocks which or actually it's it's just called the, it's called school of hard knocks and my film is called the school of hard knocks just to differentiate it but uh, the the school has been in san bernardino for over 20 years they have had many students who have made it into the biggest promotions in, in professional wrestling whether that's wwe wcw ecw mexico japan um if they went into this school, a lot of them um, have been able to go off and, and make a career for themselves. And so this film is is about the school, the, the kids who made it, but also there's some dramatic aspects that I don't want to spoil. But there's there there were there was definitely some controversy in in certain things that happened there. And the um, the the overall theme is is perseverance and and, and sticking it out and and. 20 years later, this guy who uh, started this school is still around and he's still teaching these kids and he and they're still going out there and, and making it. And so it's it's just a I wanted to make a film because I, I, I haven't been involved in film. I've done live television for the last 18 years of my life. So 
this was like my first foray into it. I I had worked on this Beatles 50th anniversary uh, special, and uh, yeah, it was it was it gave me the confidence to say, hey, I could I think I could do this in a long form because I was producing these like two to three minute packages about. Uh, the ladies who were in the Ed Sullivan Theater when the Beatles were there, or the crew members who were working backstage during that show. And um, after I had done the, the packages, I was like, I think I could do this. So this is kind of like this film is basically me saying, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> and uh, it's fun. I'm, I'm having a good time doing it. It's, uh, it's, it's still in the works. So uh, hopefully within the next year or two, I can, I can have it done. But yeah. Um, I'm having a good time doing it. That's great. Um, it's funny. So I know we've talked off uh, offline about this before, but I'm I grew up a very very big uh, WWF fan as well, and and I think obviously a lot of that influences because we grew up at like the peak of WWF, right? I mean, it's basically I think one of the only times where people could name wrestlers, even if they had no idea what wrestling was, uh, if they just looked at their face. I mean, obviously Hulk Hogan. Uh, the rock i think you know stone cold steve austin and stuff like that and um so we and we also grew up in a, in using some wrestling terms we grew up in an era where like uh you weren't really supposed to know that wrestling was scripted and fake right like you weren't supposed to break kayfabe as they say and right. so and so now that the wrestling world has changed completely um you know there are documentaries where they just talk about all like the backstage stuff that happens and all the you know politics and how wrestlers came up which i think is really interesting because i think it really sets it as like sports entertainment versus like you know wrestling is trying to be real uh and so you got like a basically a really you know the most intimate look at or are still getting a really intimate look at young wrestlers did you kind of have an interesting moment when you really got to see like the groundwork and the real backstage and early stuff of what it takes to become, you know, a pro wrestler. Yeah. So, so I actually, I mean, the reason, one of the reasons I, I ended up kind of doing this, this uh, TV show back in, in the nineties was because I, I went to the school, I went to train, I, I took bumps, I rolled, I, I ran, <laughs> I did drills and, um, and did I, you do that I, for, for exercise or did you do that? Like maybe I could be, uh, yeah, maybe I can be the next, okay. Big, I thought I, I thought I was you know you mentioned Bruce Lee um, earlier yeah, as Rufio. somebody and, and Rufio right yeah. uh, to me it was Ricky the Dragon Steamboat because okay, yeah because he looked Asian he he, he was Hawaiian but uh, or, or actually I think that's what they build him as Hawaiian but he was like I think he's like Native American he's got he's got sure. some weird things um, or Ultimo Dragon think, also yeah, yeah exactly so but 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 for me. Uh, in the eighties, it was seeing a guy like Ricky Steamboat. So I was like, oh, I want to be like this guy. And so when I started going to the school, I was like, yeah, I, I took the bumps. I took, um, the, the, the training and I just realized it wasn't for me. It was, I was, I was not click. I was never a super athletic guy. I was never in school on, I wasn't an amateur wrestler. I wasn't a football, I played basketball. Uh, I played a little bit of volleyball, but I was not an athlete by any means. So, I, I took I took the class and I realized it wasn't for me and um, I went in my direction. But I did get to see the inner work. The film isn't about kind of exploiting what wrestling is. It's it's there's themes involved of of trying to you know persevere. There's there's themes of forgiveness after betrayal and and that sort of thing. I'm not trying to like teach people how to do you know wrestling or anything like that or right, the right. history of wrestling. It's just it's a story within the wrestling world and and it's the story that i watched while i was doing that all that 
you know, because I went through, I thought I was going to go and, and be the rock and, and it didn't work out, but I got to see and understand right. how it works back there. Did you sure. have uh, a character name that you're willing to say? No, you know what? I never came up with anything myself, but what was funny was that what, what ends up happening is you go and the, the guys who ran the, the company, uh, Bill Anderson and Jesse Hernandez at the time, they would like look at you and they kind of give you a gimmick based on what you look like, you know? And so I got the gimmick of, well, they, they would just call me Brandon because I looked like Brandon Lee at Brandon the time. Brandon Lee, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and this is before The Crow. This is actually like rapid fire Brandon Lee, I think. And so I, uh, I had shorter hair, and uh, but I have, I have a longer face, which is what Brandon Lee had. And so I was Brandon. That's what they called me. I never had a like gimmick other than that, and right. it never got it never got past that point. But uh, that that's the closest thing to a gimmick I have. So I I think I would have been like Rapid Fire Brandon Vargas or or something like that. <laughs> you so, know? Well, you you could have been uh, if you had held the Brandon Lee character, you could have kept Sting from becoming yeah, you know I, you know I, Crow Sting. So thing, yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. But you know that, that this is how things went and. And, and uh, I, I have no regrets about right. the decisions I made. I, I, I know based on seeing how, um, you know, you see whether it's Eddie Guerrero, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, Road Warrior Hawk, some of, the, some of my favorites, you know, you see what the lifestyle can do, um, whether it's touring, whether it's just trying to keep your body numb from, from the abuse you have to go through. Because a lot of these guys just, they put it, you know, every night in, night out and, and it's a lot to endure, and um, I, I'm glad I didn't go down that direction because I didn't. I would never want to go and, and end up like that. Um, I still love the industry and all that, but it just wasn't how I was going to contribute to it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, so let's talk a little bit about what you do uh, once you retired from your pro, your stint in pro wrestling. So you, you mentioned <laughs> you do a lot of live um, live show work. Uh, I mean, you're, I, I looked at your credits list and you had obviously the Beatles. So the Beatles thing, I actually watched that. I made sure I took, uh, I made sure I blocked that night off to watch the night that changed America. I mean, I grew up, a, I am oh, a huge, cool. huge Beatles fan. So it's kind of funny. I mean, you have some things recently that a lot of people watched, right? Uh, a Christmas story live. You did some stuff with the, with, uh, the Oscars and, and Disney parks and stuff like that. Uh, you just said you're doing, um, the kids choice awards or you just did the kids choice Teen, awards. Uh, well, I, I did do kids choice awards but right now i'm working on the teen choice okay awards there it is summer show yeah right um so how did you get involved in you know live production uh, as clearly that became your, your forte yeah so what's funny was well so i was in school still and one of my teachers um she was an amazing lady she she still is i'm actually i think i'm going to see her this sunday yeah i actually am seeing her this sunday she uh, her name is jillian bennett and she just she saw something in me, I guess, that she really liked and she wanted to help me out. And she the first opportunity she gave me was she ended up taking over the radio station at at the school I was at, Mount Sac, and uh, she gave me a radio slot. I actually hadn't taken any radio classes. I only took TV classes, but she was like, you got a great personality. You can be great for radio. So she threw me in there. I had a three hour retro 80s show that I, I learned a lot about 80s music during that time. And um after that, she she her husband was a producer or is a producer, and she introduced me to him, and he gave me an internship opportunity out in Hollywood. So it was basically my foot in the door. That's my foot in the door moment that um, a lot of people 
everybody has a different foot in the door, you know, moment in the entertainment industry. And this was mine. And I got to go intern with uh, this gentleman, David Doyle, who produced um, and still does kind of like docu-series sort of shows. And so I came on board. I think the show was, it was a conspiracy show. It was about <laughs> like JFK conspiracy yeah. theories. And I remember I had to stay up and um, transcribe this one expert who was basically saying, yeah, of course, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald could have done it. He this, you know, and he explained it and I, I believed him. I was like, oh yeah, it sounds like it. And, but I remember typing and transcribing and, um, and just listening to this guy and typing it all out. And I remember my hands getting like very, like I could feel the, the carpal tunnel starting to act. Up. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about this. And, um, I, I went on, I did a couple more projects. We did something called Lords of the Mafia as well. And which I actually have a cameo in as a, a drug dealer because they were <laughs> like, they were like, Hey, let's throw the PA in. And so I, I did this scene cause they do those dramatizations for these docu-series shows. So, um, I did these docu-series shows. And then at the end of that, I kind of moved my way up to being a paid intern where I worked one, I, I interned one day and I got paid for the rest of the days. And at the end of that project, uh, my David Doyle, he asked me what I wanted to do now. And I'd been talking with some PAs, production assistants, and they were like, oh, yeah, the award shows, is that's the place to be. Everybody's all glammed up. It's it's just, it's amazing. And I, uh, I took that cue and I told him I wanted to work on the award shows. And he literally picked up the phone and called the Oscars office, which he had a relationship with. He had worked on the Oscars before himself. And he got me... Um, a job the next week on the Oscars 2000. And that was my first live award show opportunity. And that I, they, they had me come in and I, uh, it was like Christmas. It was a Christmas holiday season. So nobody was in the office. They, they had me delivering presents for the supervising producer. And um, it's, uh, I had a, uh, maybe I could tell you at another time, but I had a funny moment where I was in an elevator with a, one of those old IMAX, those big monitor IMAX. Yeah, yeah. I was delivering it to the boss's daughter and I was in the elevator with Don Cheadle. Oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> it was the most surreal moment. Um, and I was totally freaking out cause it was Boogie Nights had just come out and I knew who he was and, um, and I was trying to get this gigantic iMac through this elevator door and uh and he was helping me and his girlfriend was with him and she was like help him help him and i was this pa who had never done anything like this and uh and yeah so i, I that was after i delivered those presents they asked me if i wanted to stay on board for the rest of the the show and i stayed on board and but while i was doing it because basically oscars at that time was april and this was end of december so i had about three months ahead of me of working on the Oscars. But every weekend, I found an award show to work on through connections I had made. Another one of the production managers I worked on that show, uh, the Lords of the Mafia show with, he did the same thing. He's like, what do you want to do next? And he made a call to Dick Clark Productions. And mm -hmm. next thing you know, I had an opportunity to work on the American Music Awards. So through those two calls that my superiors had made, David and, and Joe Neary, I got to put my foot in the world of live award shows. And from, from 2000, I, I basically tried to do as many award shows as I could. And I, I think I did like five or six by the time April came around. I did SAG Awards. Within Grand. your first year too, just. Within the first yeah. like five months, yeah. I, I, I'd done American Music Awards, Grammys, SAG Awards, um, 
Kids' Choice Awards or Oscars, then Kids' Choice Awards. So five shows before April or before May. Um, and then I just, I realized I loved it. It was, it was really intense because <laughs> once, once you're live, you're live yeah. and you're, you, you, you got to keep moving. So that was really cool. And I just, I dug it, man. I, maybe it was the wrestling thing. Maybe it was that, that whole live aspect, but I just, I, I liked it more than the docuseries stuff. I do like the docuseries stuff and that's kind of connected to the whole movie thing too. But, um, the award show world really called to me. And, and so I, I did that for about four or five months and um i just moved my way up and uh i mean i've just been amazing yeah no i mean it's it's funny you like that story whenever i listen to whether it's a podcast interview or uh, a a documentary about an actor or actress or something like that whenever they talk about they're sort of like in the door moment um it's funny in the back of my head i'm always like was was it really like that did you really just like you got that one call and that was it. And it's funny that you have two of those. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And, and, and what it boils down to is, is really like, I make you have to make an impression. You have to make an impression on somebody so that they will vouch for you. And, and, and that worked it, from when I was in college and my teacher was like, I like you, you're, you're a good kid. You're gregarious. You're, you, you are, are not disruptive in my class, but you like to have a good time. And, and she she took that and she gave me an opportunity. And then same thing for her husband and, and the production manager as well. They they saw I was busting my butt and I was willing to work late and I was willing to put in what needed to be put in to, to get the job done. And that those moments are the moments if you're trying to get into something where those are the most crucial, where you have to make an impression and, and that requires just doing the best you can. And, and 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 having a smile on your face when you do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want to be face, not heel. Um, exactly. So uh, people like being heel. <laughs> that's true. Uh, so before we wrap, I, I definitely want to ask: um, Can you tell us a little bit about your your Emmy award that you won? Was it last year, two years ago? Yeah. What was it for? Yeah. What was that like? So last year, Creative Arts Emmys, um, we got nominated for a show called The Oscars All Access, and The Oscars All Access is a um it's basically a show that happens simultaneously with the televised oscars broadcast on abc and it happens on at least last year it happened on facebook watch and um what we do is we we provide some additional coverage to the broadcast and so after say matthew mcconaughey has stepped off the stage and given his speech he now goes backstage and there's a camera there which is called the thank you camera which was actually created by Laura Ziskin, who was trying to find a way to make the speeches on stage shorter. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> like, here's your opportunity to thank all your agents. Here's your opportunity to thank all these people. So you go off stage, and now we have this camera set up there, and that's part of our broadcast where you can see the additional thank yous and the additional things that they want to say. Um, and then we also have cameras in the press room. We have cameras in the photography room where they go after they won the award. So our show is a second screen experience basically it's an interactive experience and that uh it we got nominated we're up against some we're up against like stand up to cancer uh we're up against uh, the voice snapchat show we're up against some aclu benefit as well i didn't i mean i i didn't think we were gonna be able to beat stand up to cancer or an aclu show but um you know we 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 got the nod and um 
it was it was an amazing experience. It was 18 years, definitely um, full circle, because like I said, my first show was the Oscars, and and to be able to win uh, an Emmy for a show about the Oscars, it was it was kind of surreal. And uh, and so yeah, we we got we won last year, and we got nominated for the second time um, about two weeks ago when they made the nomination announcement. So I'm a two-time nominee now. There and uh, Yeah, so we'll, the, the next uh, September, I think, our, our broadcast, because we're part of the Creative Arts Emmys, which is prior to. Um, I think ours, our show is on September 10th um, or, or 9th. One of those days is, is, is when our show uh, happens. So we'll see come, come, come then if, uh, if we're going to have two of those bad boys. If not, you know. One is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, most most people would would beg for one or even just to be nominated. So that's awesome. You'd, you'd be surprised, man. There's some people in this industry who have been around for years and they they still haven't got one. So it's a real weird thing where where you get, um, for example, camera operators. I know a camera operator. He's a steady cam operator by the name of Tori Livia. Amazing steady cam operator, and he has like ten or something. Because <laughs> Because when they give the technical uh, awards, they, they include like the entire camera crew. And so a lot of these guys have like double digit awards. It's pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Which is good though. I mean, I, I do wish, I think as like a, a cinephile and kind of like cinematography nerd and all that sort of stuff that the creative awards got a little more, technical awards got a little more love uh, on screen. But, you know, I, I understand that's obviously pretty niche. <laughs> you know yeah people, oh totally yeah. but i do i do keep up on seeing who wins things like that um so we're just about out of time here uh a that was a fun super fun conversation yeah, um, where, where can people find you online how can they keep up with uh the school of hard knocks all that sort of stuff yeah so for for me you could find me on instagram and twitter at augie max that's a-u-g-i-e-m-a-x um, on Facebook, I couldn't for some reason I couldn't get at Augie Max. So I have uh, <laughs> produced by Augie Max is uh, my my handle on there, and Augie Max Vargas. You could just search for that, and that'll pop up. And then for the School of Hard Knocks, my handle is at Hard Knocks Film. So and that's on all three. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And um, yeah, you could follow the coming and goings with that. I'm gonna be launching my second crowd. I started crowdfunding. Uh, about a year ago, um, and now I'm going to do a second round of funding uh, the day after the Emmys. So depending on uh, on how that goes, I might get some good funding. We'll sure, see. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, you could you could follow along on there. I, I do post updates on there. I just posted a huge update on there as well, just about where we're at. I've shot over 22 interviews and. Um, and I just need like maybe about a dozen more. So I'm just trying to raise the funds for that. So hopefully I can get that done within the next year or so. It's hard because I, I'm juggling it between working Your on real work. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's great because I get to work on these amazing projects, but it's really trying to fit them in between like, Oh, this ends. Uh, and I have like one week off and it's like, okay, I call my editor up and we show up and, and start editing for a day or two. And then, <laughs> right. then I have to go back and it's just, it's just it's very independent you know yeah yeah but you know persevering being a theme of your uh film it's gonna add up you know it'll show in in the final product well you know it's a passion piece and my whole thing is i'm not looking to uh if it makes money whatever um i'm just i just want to make the film because i it's just it's just like the the tv show i did for them when i was in junior college like this is like me just trying to 
build the confidence to know I can do it. So it's amazing. And it's a great story. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, Augie, thank you so much. And um, hopefully we'll see your film in the near future and see you uh, pick up another uh, Emmy as well. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I appreciate this. And uh, I, I'm very honored to be part of, uh, part of this podcast. Thank you.